I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 166. I just keep telling myself this week that something's in retrograde, something's in something grade. I don't fucking know. Because I feel like I am spinning my wheels in one place. Do you feel like that this week? You're like, no. No. <laughs> Golly. I've been busy, but it's been productive busy. I've been productive because I've gotten things done, but there's literally not enough hours in the day is what it feels like. Yeah. I've been so behind. Like, I feel like I've neglected the Facebook groups this week or Discord this week. Like, I cannot keep up this week. Not, like, just podcast stuff because I've just been so freaking busy. That's my complaint fest for the day. <laughs> okay, for this hour, let's be honest. But we're here. Well, she is running in place like Scooby-Doo, but I have a recommendation for you. A rhymed. She's got to figure out the rhyme. I literally just said Scooby-Doo recommendation for you. That's literally what I said in my head. <laughs> I know. I saw your eyes. You saw my eyes look up in the sky? <laughs> yeah. Was that a rhyme? No. Damn no. it. <laughs> no. Not quite. Not even a little. But, okay. So, this is kind of old, but I thought it was like... For kids, like legit kids, so I didn't watch it, but it's called Lock and Key on Netflix, and so it's kind of sci-fi, like Narnia meets, I don't know, PG-13 kind of stuff. There's like secret keys, and there's like evil stuff, so like, I don't know, it's really cool. What was the name of it? Lock and Key. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Their last names is Lock. Mm. Hmm. And there's secret keys. I yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, that's all I have. Oh, okay. You know what I have? Patreoners. <laughs> so thank you so much, Brooke P from Arizona. Pam L from California. Sandra M from Missouri. Yesenia M from Texas. Courtney B from Georgia. Meredith U from Kansas. Not good. Okay, bye. Yeah, don't don't do that again. <laughs> Amy P from Mississippi. Teresa B from New Zealand. Valerie T from Pennsylvania. And Tanya R from Tennessee. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. We hope that y'all are enjoying all the bonus content. If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. But we know that not everybody can support us on Patreon. Because, you know, times are tough. It's just not financially viable for everyone. Is that the right word? Sure. Whatever. You know, whatever the words are. Anyway, but we totally get it that not everyone can support us that way. But one of the best ways you can support us is by leaving us a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast because that really does help us out. So if you could please leave us a review. And if we have recommended different podcasts to you, you liked them, let them know that we sent you over there. Oh, and I got one more shout out. So I was figuring out what I wanted to do this week. And I'm like, "Mm, I want to do something good. But, you know, like that means it's going to be bad. Right. And I found this one and I'm like, God, this name sounds so familiar, though. And I put it in like my Apple podcast player and didn't pull up in my library, didn't, you know, I'm like, okay, so I haven't covered it, huh? 
And I'm like, God, the more I'm reading about it, I'm like, I swear to God, I know this. So I went over to the handy dandy APC episode guide that Karen A, she is freaking amazing. She put it together and it lists what Carrie did, what I did, what the date was, who was shouted out on it, like it, what city it's from, like all the things. That girl, amazing. As Carrie would say, chef's kiss. So I typed in the, I don't. That was literally like an 80s movie sound. <laughs> like that's what you just did. That was not a keyboard. Well, that's how I type. You know, I got Do the 80s though? player. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> but typed it in. Bam. Already covered it. I was like, Carrie, you got my back, girl, because I was about to go. It sounded like you said, Carrie, you got my back. No, no, no. Karen, she got my back. <laughs> I mean, I could have put in that much work. I didn't, but I could have. <laughs> yes, Karen. Thank you. So since I did that, I was like, all right, I want to stay in this lane, but obviously not cover this person. It was Michael Taylor. I can't remember the episode, but if you're in the group, there is a file for that. But it was a really good episode because I was getting real excited to cover it again. I was going to say, if you do say so yourself, (laughs) it was a really good episode that I did that I covered. Well, it was a good story that I covered. No, but I remember, uh, gosh, I can't remember what you covered, but I was like, damn, that had to be a good episode. Damn, I remember how good I did on that episode when I told y'all that story. Whatever. Were y'all totally captured by the way I told y'all that story? Because I'm a Leo and amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Except for its sound effects. (laughs) I know my weakness there. Yeah, I I definitely do. (laughs) Definitely do. (laughs) Okay, well, glad we got some laughs out of the way because uh, this week is going to be a really hard story because it deals with child abuse and subsequently murder. So look in the episode notes because I believe Will puts timestamps in there. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Bamu family. The mother and father are Pierre and Jacqueline Bamu. They started a family in Zaire, which was previously known as the Democratic Republic of Congo. We're going to focus on their first child, a daughter born in February of 1983. Her name is Magali Bamu. Soon after she was born, Pierre decided that he wanted to open his own business and it would be more successful in Paris. I don't know why they chose Paris. Like, I could never find that fact, but they did. He was there. His business was carpentry design and manufacturing. And so that's what the family did. They moved to Paris, and for a while, everything was good. But then Pierre and Jacqueline decided to move back to Congo, and it was also decided that Magali, who was 13 now, was to live with family from her mother's side in East London. It was her mother's niece, Phoebe, and Phoebe's hubby, Ferdinand. The reason for leaving Magalie to live with them was education. However, that is not what she received. Oh, no. Instead, she was forced to do all the domestic responsibilities around the house, 
So cooking, cleaning, taking care of their kids, even though she was just a child herself. And because she had all of these responsibilities thrusted upon her, she was not able to attend school. The whole reason she stayed behind from her parents. And that's how Magalie's life was for a while. She did, however, get to attend some courses later on in her life, and she worked cleaning houses in order to afford her bus fare to that school. So she had a hard life at the hands of family. You know, the ones who were supposed to love her unconditionally, but they never really showed her any love. And that's besides her parents, but I'm saying she grew up with Phoebe and old Ferdy, and that was at the formative years. Okay, so fast forward a bit to 2004, and Magalie was working as a dental nurse, and she was finally in charge of her own life, you know? And through a friend, she met the man that she knew was her soulmate. He was so nice, so athletic, and, you know, all that jazz. His name is Eric Bakubi, and he was a football coach. So, like, for us mm-hmm. USers, soccer, but football coach. And he had been a footballer who, you know, had mad skills, had all the girls go crazy over him. So, he just had that swag. And, I mean, like, any coach is sexy. Mm-hmm. I have two words for you. Coach Taylor. Mm-hmm. Is that from uh, that movie you like? Look, I did not love the movie. I love the series. Oh. Friday Night Lights, girl. Yeah, that's not what I was talking about. Kyle Chandler? I thought you were talking about... um, Remember the Titans? Yeah. Well, that's Denzel Washington, and I'm not going to scoff at him either, but no. Coach Taylor? That little brown-haired guy? Yeah. Little brown-haired guy? Over Denzel Washington? Man, no. Yes, full eyes, full hearts, full other things. Mm. How you know? I'm saying he can fill me up. Oh, okay. What you saying, full other? How you know? I thought you had like a full frontal. (laughs) (laughs) You always thinking about penises. You were thinking about it too. (laughs) You were thinking about the cream fill. I sure was. (laughs) Can you not interrupt me when I'm talking about Coach Taylor? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. If y'all know what I'm talking about, please back me up. Coach Taylor, like ultimate crush. All right, so now we're getting back to this story, and we're going to talk about Eric a little bit. He was also born in the Democratic Republic of Congo in 1983. Sadly, his mother died while she gave birth to him. Oh. So he grew up with his father, who was a gold trader, He did have siblings, but he lived a secluded life. When he was seven, he and some of his other relatives left Congo because of the war, and they found refuge in East London. The uncle who he had escaped with was the only elder male influence he had in his life for a while. That's so something that we will never understand is that fleeing to a foreign land. Right. Well, hopefully we never understand it, but in our so far in our lifetime, we just cannot comprehend that level of fear and trauma that is just ingrained in you from such a small age where you literally have to leave everything you know. Yeah. Because of war. Yeah. 
And just the, the trauma associated with that. Right. And he did it when he was seven. Well, that uncle, he sadly passed away soon after due to AIDS. So the difference between the two families who were from the same region was pretty considerable. But the biggest one was that Eric grew up learning about Kendoki. And Kendoki is, I hope I say this right, but the Lingala word for witchcraft, which was his mother's native language. And we all know that witchcraft is not a negative religion at all, but we also all know that there's extremist views in all religions that make them dangerous. And how Eric was taught, as well as people in Congo and some immigrants in London who had come over to escape the war like Eric did, Kendoki was dangerously evil. According to an article in The Independent, traditional Congolese cultures strongly believe there's two realms. There's a physical and there's a spiritual. And they're intertwined. And sadly, there are more than 14,000 children, children, who have been abandoned or forcibly removed from their homes due to the suspicion of Kendoki. What? Yeah. And that's just in Congo. Like the 14,000, just in Congo region. In that same article, an example was given that it's like, okay, if you're neighbors with someone, so say me and Carrie, we're friends. She gets really sick. I don't. So when bad things happen to someone, everyone would be like, well, why did that happen to her? Obviously, she has either been possessed or a witch has cast a spell on her. Mm -hmm. So Kendoki has been involved, like it's involved and that's why. So again, the spiritual intermingles with the physical. But the thing is, is that Kendoki, (laughs) it's the smallest things that can make someone say, that child's possessed. That child has Kendoki. You know, like all of that. It's like, What it's that's just a normal thing that people do, but it's like, no, 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 that child's possessed, and it's dangerous to say that. So, just keep this in mind with the story. But we're going to talk again about Kondoki a little later. I get people not understanding illness and disease and all the things, and so they try to rationalize it in the best possible way that they can, given the information that they have and that has been passed down as part of their culture and that sort of thing. But, but like, can we get away from blaming curses and possession for just like diseases? Like, can, can we get away from that? Yeah, I mean. And stop blaming other people for things that they had nothing to do with because someone got a fucking communicable disease. Like, you didn't cast a spell on me because I got AIDS, like his uncle, or I got the fucking flu, or I have pancreatitis. You didn't cast a spell on me. You know, and again, I understand cultural norms and education systems and, and... Like, I know that there's way more that goes to that than I'm way oversimplifying it. Yeah. I get that. But it's like, can we just not jump straight to like possession and like blaming a witch 
I mean, just maybe just that. Yeah. That's all I ask. Okay, so we're going to fast forward again, and this time to 2010. Well, and it is the most wonderful time of the year for most people who aren't spooky bitches, because we all know that that's really October. For the sake of this, though, you know, it's the most wonderful time of the year when. Christmas, girl, Christmas. I know. That really is her most wonderful time of the year, but for us spooky peeps, it's Halloween. I can be both people. Sure, sure, but you have to choose one. No. Mm-hmm. One is more important to you than the other. And I'll tell you which one is. Christmas. How do we know? Because your village is huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's Christmas 2010. And we're going to lump all of the Bamu siblings together. Magali's five younger siblings were coming to spend the holidays with her and Eric who had proposed to Magalie earlier in the year. And their parents still had work to finish, so they were like, y'all kids go up there, and a few days after, we'll come up and we'll spend the New Year's together, and we'll all celebrate the engagement, you know, all the things. Two siblings were minors, so we do not know their names ever. But the three we do know are Eve, a male who is 22 years old, Kelly, a female who's 20, and Christy, a male who is 15. There was a younger sister who was 11, and then a younger brother who was 13. But again, those are the two that we don't know their names. As, like, we shouldn't know, so it's all good. Eve, the 22-year-old, is on the autism spectrum. Every one of the siblings were so happy and so freaking excited to spend time in London during Christmas and the new year with their older sister and her partner. And Eric had become an older brother to them. Eric and Magali were both 28 at the time. However, what no one knew besides Eric and Magali was that they had recently just gotten back together. Like right when he proposed. Mm. Before that, Magali lived in a woman's shelter for three months. Oh, no. But they had kept that a secret, and they had actually kept it a secret how turbulent their relationship was from the beginning. You know, that sweet guy, he turned into a controlling, verbally abusive monster. He refused to let Magali see any of her friends or wear makeup But we all know we cannot victim shame or blame or anything. And so she stayed with him because, honestly, that's what she was accustomed to. That was love for her. The longer they were together, the more she saw Eric's obsession with Kendoki grow. He confided in her that he used to see rats that were not there when he was younger. And he feared that he was riddled with Kendoki. And as he aged, he started to have these dreams of his brother trying to kill him in order to cure him from his evilness. And he also moved around London a lot to try to outrun Kendoki. He wasn't seeing the rats anymore, so he thought he was free of it, but he never wanted it again. So if he moved, changed locations a lot, he'd be safe. 
He eventually sought the help of a Nigerian priest for his worries. That was like his sole focus, honestly. So the reason why she went and stayed at a woman's refuge for the three months was because in 2008, one of her friends named Naomi, I believe she was 19 years old when she stayed with them, she had a bad habit that most do. She bit her nails. Unfortunately, Eric saw her biting her nails and he freaked his freak over it. And for the last three days that she stayed with them, he was convinced that she was possessed by Kendoki. Eric tried to exercise the evil out of her by starvation. Oh my God. Dehydration and sleep deprivation. Oh my God. Both he and Magali would sit there and pray with her and like force her to pray. And one time when they were praying, they forcibly cut her hair short. And this was to finally, you know, this was a way that he was going to release the Kendoki. Her hair had been down to the middle of her back. Oh, my gosh. And now it was, you know, like above her shoulders. Do we know, like, did she just like her hair long or did, did that have anything to do with her, like, religious or cultural preference? I don't know about that. I'm just going to say she liked it, but I have no idea. So somehow Naomi was able to call her mom and she was like, Mom, run, don't walk, come get me, SOS, I need help. So luckily, Naomi's torture only lasted three days. But can you freaking imagine three days of not eating, not sleeping, not drinking, and being forced to cut your hair because you bit your nails? Here's the thing, too, is that we know that the trauma of that isn't only going to last three days. Even as she deals with the trauma, let's say that she goes to counseling every fucking day and she deals with it and she's really working through what happened to her. She's going to have to relive that every time she looks in the mirror and sees her haircut. Yeah. Yeah. Because of, quote unquote, allowing her friend to leave, Magali was punished by Eric. We hate him. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. He made her eat off the floor, and then he beat her to the point that she had a black eye. And that was the final straw for her. For those three months, she, you know, was like, all right, I'm done. I'm seeking shelter somewhere else. But then we know that there's that pool that most don't understand or can't comprehend. But it pulled her back to him and he promised her the promise she always wanted. Him to be her family forever. Marriage. Well, here's the thing, is that the abuser knows exactly what to say to get the person that they have abused back, because they are master manipulators in general, but especially when it comes to their victims. Mm-hmm. They don't just choose any victims. They choose people that they believe that they can manipulate, or at the very least, that they can read well enough to know what to say or what buttons to push or what heartstrings to tug on or, yeah, you know, when to offer marriage. You know, it's, it's a chess game for them. Yeah. Also, going back just a little bit, there's one thing that I don't understand is when you are sleep depriving someone like that, like you have to be sleep deprived too. 
Like, you're really punishing yourself, too. Like, that makes no sense to me. Probably what they did was take turns, him and Magali. I guess so. That I mean, you'd have to. You'd have to have multiple people. Or you'd, you're literally just punishing yourself. Mm-hmm. If you're that scared and that obsessed with something, you might be too scared to sleep because you are sure that she is, you know, possessed with Kendoki and all. You know what I mean? So who knows? I, I don't know. I've never been that to that point or anything. Yeah, but when you say it like that and it paints that fear in him, it almost makes you kind of feel sorry for him in that he really was so terrified because of how he was raised and mm-hmm. how he, you know, oh, that's what I hate because it, yeah. it does. I do feel a little sorry for him because he knows no better than, oh, she's doing something that I don't understand. Ergo, she has to be possessed. She has to have Kendoki, and that has to be it because she's doing something that I don't understand. Therefore, I have to rid her of this, so I have to torture her. Right. But we hate him because he tortured her. And I would feel sorry for him if he wasn't, you know, the abuser that he was before he was scared of the person staying with them having Kendoki. You know what I mean? Like, he was a bad person before that fear of this one person set in. Yeah. So we can all see where this story's going. But old Eric, he saw Magalie's siblings as one thing, the carrier of evil into their apartment. Oh, God. So for a few days, everything was good until it wasn't. Like all those memes say where it's like they were the perfect family. Until they weren't. And they, like, invert the picture. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's what that reminded me of. And the catalyst for this 180 isn't really known. But in a Huffington Post article, they narrowed it down to a few things. It could have been that Eve was on the spectrum. And, you know, that's seen as, quote, abnormal or, quote, atypical. Or... It could have been that Eve's lip got, like, super swollen from an allergic reaction. And so, you know, like, that's out of the norm. Why is that happening? And that probably freaked Eve out. And, again, if he doesn't have the same responses as what Eric is thinking is normal, that's going to put, you know, like, red flag, red flag, alert, alert, whatever. Or there was some speculation that it could have been from the younger brother who had trouble getting out of the bed. And we don't know any more information on this part. So I don't know if, hell, the bed might have been really tall. Carrie's bed is tall. Like, I would have been like, trying to get in, trying to get out. Like, I don't know. Or if there was some physical disability there. Like, we don't know. Because, again, he's a minor. However... Most agree that it's probably because Christy, he had an accident where he was waiting on the bathroom, like woke up, needed to go to the bathroom. The bathroom was occupied and he wet his pants. Oh, He's 15. He doesn't want to be laughed at or anything. And, you know, he looked up to his older sister and her really cool fiance because what he knew of him he's a footballer Mm -hmm. he's a football coach he's got the swag he's got all of this you know he's not going to be like 
oh, yeah, I wet my pants. Right. You know, because I couldn't hold it, whatever. You know what I mean? Like, because you all know how it is when you're like, well, I didn't mean to, but there was a line and then they wouldn't get out of the bathroom. And it's like, I don't want those excuses. You know, like, those are just excuses. Those right. are whatever. So, you know, like, he didn't want to be that person. And so he hit him. He hit his underwear and he just tried to let it, you know, slip under the rug. Like, okay, no one knew that happened. But Eric found the soiled underwear. And that is what's thought that really set it all off and just flipped that switch in Eric's mind that Magalie's siblings were sent to London to kill him. What? What? Mm Mm-hmm. Because remember, he thought he had Kendoki and that his brother was going to kill him. And so then it's like, well, no, now they're like super evil, but they're going to kill me. You know, it was, ugh. Well, later in an interview, the youngest sibling, a little boy, he said that Eric asked whose underwear it was. And Christy confessed that they belonged to him. And that just made him the prime target then. Eric also asked, and this is a quote from that Huffington Post article where the younger brother was interviewed. He said, how can a boy of your age wee himself in the bed? And Christy again said he was getting up to go to the bathroom. It was occupied and he couldn't hold it. But Eric scoffed at him and was like, nope, that's not it at all. It was Kendoki. So the next day, Eric spent the entire day Grilling each sibling about Kendoki. But here's the thing. Most of Magali's siblings, they were born in France. So they didn't grow up knowing about Kendoki or anything. So they're extremely confused when Eric started ranting about everything. All they knew is that he was angry and accusing them of something evil and dangerous and calling them witches. Eric began forcing all the siblings to constantly pray, and he also started denying them food and water. He said they would not be able to have any food or sleep again until Eve, again, who's on the spectrum, started to act the same as them, you know, quote, normal. Oh, so literally impossible for him because he's neuroatypical. Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So again, we hate Eric. Well, we know nothing good is going to come of this story. No good resolution, because instead, soon after, his deprivation went from what it's been so far to extreme torture. Oh, God. It's said that Eric forced all the siblings to jump out of a window (gasps) to see if they could fly since they were witches. And they were on the eighth floor of the apartment, but I don't think it was that window because... Some of them survived. Or they all survived that at least, right? Right. So, I don't know. I don't know if that was a threat. And so it just got, like, miscommunicated that they did it or what. Like, you know, I don't know. Or if it was hell in the car. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. All of them were beaten. The youngest girl was forced to eat a light bulb. What? Yeah. Yeah. And the siblings had no one to help them because their own sister, Magali, was helping torture them. After a day or so, Kelly and the 11-year-old sister, 
they both were like, you know what? You're right. We're witches. And they did this to hopefully avoid more beatings. And it worked. Because Eric then believed, you know what? They were not the cause. It was Christy. He was the impure one. He was the one who was possessed and had infected them all. And he was forcing them to be evil. He was the one who actually had kendoki and like had spread it to everyone else, you know? Because again, he had wet himself. And so that was that triggering thing, like Naomi biting her nails. So again, it's like out of the norm, but norm things to happen. Because yeah, he was 15, but also this happens to much younger kids too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if you're a fucking toddler, wetting yourself isn't unheard of. But for this, I'd be like, Kendoki, you know? Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, this poor kid could probably have fucking interstitial cystitis. (laughs) I mean, I'm just saying. I'm I'm only laughing just because, I mean, I'm just fucking saying. You know, I mean, it's a problem. It is a problem that I still can't spell or say correctly. Well, as long as you understand it's a problem. I understand it's a problem. And if you're ever passed out and I have to tell doctors what you have, I'm going to be like, that one, Mm -hmm. her IgG. That's not the same thing. Shit. (laughs) Look, Carrie's going to be passed out. I'm going to be telling them all her shit. And, and I'm going to open one eye and go, that's not fucking right, Donna. Look, by the time I finish one thing, you're going to be back awake and be like, here, I got it. And they're going to be like, oh, thank God. <laughs> Whew. Okay, y'all. So hopefully you got a little bit of relief there because whew, it's about to get really bad. So seriously, like if you're like, oh, my God, this hasn't been too bad. What? No, no, no. It's about to get real, real. And when I say it's bad. It is bad. So here we go. Through all the punishments thus far, Christy remained strong in his denial of being a witch or anything to do with Kendoki. And all that did was make his quote unquote cleansing worse. Christy was attacked and repeatedly hit with a hammer. He was also forced to eat screws. Oh, my God. And then one time, Eric propped Christy's mouth open wide as he forcibly inserted a metal bar, the kind of thing you put weights on for the weightlifting bench. Uh-huh. He inserted that inside his mouth. Then Eric got a chisel and a dumbbell, and he used that to make the bar go even further down Christy's throat. Do you know how much that bar weighs? Uh, enough that people do it by themselves, like yeah. that bar itself. Yeah, a lot. Like like at least 25 pounds. Well, with him doing the chisel and the dumbbell, that resulted in most of his teeth being knocked out. Oh, God. And he probably swallowed them. Yeah, because that thing went down his throat. Oh, Magali used pliers to twist and mutilate one of Christie's ears. And the then, sister did it? Yes. And then she forced Kelly, the other sister, to do it too. Poor Kelly. Yeah. Eric and Magalie used a 12-inch knife to make thin cuts 
all over Christy's body and face. And then they also forced all the other siblings to do so as well, completely mutilating Christy's face. Oh, God. Eric forced Christy to drink his own urine. (gasps) And then he instructed the siblings to smash the nearby ceramic tiles on Christy's head and back. And see, they were remodeling their apartment. So they had some extras that were laying around and not like they didn't have adhesive on them and whatever. So why not use them? You know, just trying to make it a little lighter here. But yeah, just smashed these ceramic tiles. I mean, how fucking industrious of them. I mean, what the fuck? The beatings with the claw hammer continued. Oh, God. A a fucking claw hammer? I can't. Uh Uh-uh. Until Christy's fingers, his feet, his hands, and his thighs were all smashed. So picture this sadistic torture for three and a half days. Like, you can't imagine it, right? Like, no. I, I can't. Like, I can't. Well, for Christy, he had over 130 separate injuries. By Christmas Eve, the fourth day... Christy begged Magalie, his oldest sister, to just let him die. Just let him die. But that was not an option. Instead, Eric started to force the other siblings to clean up the apartment that was soaked in blood. And he had some loud music blaring. So there was a noise complaint because they lived in an apartment building. But no police were sent out. Like, the apartment complex sent someone up. I don't know who, but they just went up to the apartment. But instead of knocking on the door and inspecting or whatever, they just listened outside and was like, oh, I hear some splashing, some loud music. Eh, nothing bad. They were probably like, this is above my pay grade. It's a holiday. Bye. You know, like, who mm-hmm. who knows? But it would be later that night that Eric called Pierre, the Bamu's father, to tell him that if he didn't come and get Christy, he was going to kill him. And so then Eric gave the phone to Christy, who calmly told him, yes, he's going to kill me. This just dumbfounded Pierre and Jacqueline because Pierre later said in an interview about Eric that they regarded him as a son, and it made them so proud when he would call them mom and dad, and they had just started to plan their future as a family together, and they thought about what kind of legacy they could build as a family together, and so Eric and Pierre were going to open a restaurant in London. So to hear this, it just came out of left field, so the parents kind of thought it was a weird joke at first. Because also, on some accounts, they forced Kelly at knife point to call and say, oh, we're having a great time. You know, so to hear, we're having a great time, having a great time, I'm going to kill your son. Right. You know, it's like, wait, what? But then they were like, you know what? Let's not dismiss this. Let's get there. But try as they might, they were stuck. It was a six-hour car ride from Paris to London. That's what I read. I didn't Google map it. You know I'm bad with directions. There were no rentals available right then. There were snowstorms hitting Paris. 
And so all the planes were grounded and Eurostar, their high-speed train wasn't even running. But even if they had been able to leave right then, they would have been too late because Eric and Magalie forced all the siblings into the bathtub and started filling it up with water. And as it was filling up, they were using the handheld sprayer to cleanse them. And this water was bone-chilling cold. I figured it would have been the opposite, though. Right. To, like, scald it off of them. You know, I know that's terrible, but I really assumed it was going to be the opposite. Yeah. And on Christmas Day, 2010, Christie's body gave out on him. And he had no strength to keep standing. And he crumbled into the tub. His head slipped under the water, and no one really paid attention until Kelly noticed he wasn't coming back up. And that's when they called 911 and reported that there was a drowning. I mean, why even report it? I mean, you did this. You, ca- I mean, like, you got what you wanted. I mean. Because they knew the parents are going to report it. I guess so. And so if they at had least waited, they could yeah. say, we tried. You know, but like, you don't think they're going to be like, hmm, what are all these wounds? Right. Well, the next call was at 8 p.m. And that was to Pierre. And that one was from Kelly. And she was the one to inform him that her brother, his 15 year old son, Christy, was dead. When the paramedics arrived, Christy was, like I said, already dead. The police and paramedics were not expecting to find what they found when they answered this 911 call. They were thinking a drowning. But what they walked into was a torture chamber masked as an apartment. There was blood on the walls, the floor, the ceiling. There were different bloodied tools laying scattered around. There were two girls and two boys standing there soaking wet, shaking uncontrollably, and visibly terrified. Then when they rounded the corner into the bathroom, they found Christy and his mutilated body and more blood. Eric and Magalie were arrested that night, and they both pled guilty to actual bodily harm on the grounds of diminished responsibility due to brain damage. But that was rejected, And that made them have a trial by jury. Eric's defense claimed that he had a brain injury and his upbringing, his culture, all of that. And, oh yeah, he had schizophrenia. And I don't know if they did a test and found that out after. And so it was like, whew, okay, let's add this, you know. Yeah. I don't know. But they were like, this diminishes his responsibility for that, because he, because even how you said, like, you felt sorry for him because of that pure terror. Like, he really was scared that that girl was trying to kill him, that these kids were trying to kill him, mm-hmm. you know, all of this. So it's like, if we can just play on that, if we can just say this was not his fault, it was beyond his control. And, you know, he was just doing as he was told. Right. Well, Magalie's defense was like, well, she didn't even believe in witchcraft. She didn't grow up really learning about it. Like, she knew about it, but didn't really believe in it. 
but she was manipulated. She was abused and manipulated. Kelly, however, testified against her sister, and she said that the lack of remorse from her sister when she was brutally beating them and torturing them, and they were asking her to stop, like, no, that wasn't just her being manipulated. Like, she was doing that. Yeah, she was in it. Yeah. Kelly stated, Christy asked for forgiveness. He asked again and again. Magali did absolutely nothing. She didn't give a damn. She said we deserved it. Kelly went on to say, I'm sure she even believes to this day that we're witches. I have no pity for her. She had no pity for us. So it's like, sure, girl, you think you're going to play that card? No, no. And like Kelly threw it down. She threw it down with like, not today. Yeah, not with fucking witnesses. Right. Well, there is another part that was just heart-wrenching. At the trial, there was a letter that was written by Pierre, the father. And in it, he wrote, Christy died in unimaginable circumstances at the hands of people who he loved and trusted. To know that Christy's own sister, Magalie, did nothing to save Christy makes the pain that much worse. And he even said, like, he lost two children. Mm -hmm. Well, the jury deliberated for 26 hours. Shit. Eric Bakubi eventually was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison, and Magalie was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years. So the judge, David Paget, I think is how you say it, this was his last case before retiring. Like, can you imagine? No. He couldn't. Let me tell you, it affected him. And he told the jury that since they had to endure these horrifying details of the case, and they recovered all of those weapons because they were all out. And so you saw all of this, but it's there, you know? And so it's just like, and then I can't even imagine what they saw. Yeah. You know? So he said, you're excused from any jury duty in the future for the rest of your life. Wow. Yeah. And that's the story of the Bamu family. However, I want to go back to Kendoki for a moment. Because like I mentioned earlier, it's still something that people believe in and is cited as a cause for several child abuse cases. I was watching this show on YouTube, but it was BBC Newsnight. And it said that, and this is just so sad, At the beginning, like in the beginning of Kendoki, the belief of that, it was really thought to affect older people. But because of the war in Congo, children were made to become soldiers. And, you know, they were forced to do such just, oh, depraved things. And, you know, whatever, they began to be feared. And it's like, you know oh my gosh, these kids are so powerful. And oh my gosh, how could kids be normal coming back from war? Like after they saw that, you know, like all of that. So it's like all of that's in the back of the mind. And then it's like, oh, well, if they have, you know, PTSD, Kendoki. Yeah. You know? So they literally fear their own doing. Yes. Which, I mean, that's, yeah. Well, then... Evangelical Christians, you know, 
And other people who are basically, you know, for-profit religious people, they looked at this belief in Kandoki and possessions, and they were like, oh my God, we have a gold mine here. Holy shit. Because even though Congo, like, you know, there's poverty and then like everywhere. I mean, there's people who are educated, people who aren't, people, whatever. It didn't matter. This was a belief, you know? So they took this belief and made it, quote unquote, real. And so even families who couldn't afford to go see these preachers who could, you know, exercise the demon out of their child, they would then take it into their own hands. So then you have cases like, the Bamu children, and, you know, and that was the norm of severe beatings, starvation, depriving them of everything. That's normal because that's to get the evil out. And it's like, you know, that makes you evil. But they thought, oh, the kid can't feel it because they're possessed by the witch. Mm -hmm. So they can't feel it. It's the witch. Like, no, 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 sis. That's not how this works. But... On that BBC news night, there were these two people who had grown up at the same time as the Bamu kids, and they were asked if they believed in Kendoki, and they did. And they referenced Harry Potter. What? Yes. And they're like, Harry Potter, right there. You see, like, if you watch that, that can come into your life. Like, those people are evil. In that show, they are evil. And if you watch it, like... Your kids can become evil, you know, and it's like... Well, you know, whenever uh, Harry Potter first came out, a lot of Christian people didn't let, like, didn't want their kids and all Mm -hmm. watching it because of of that. Yes. And I'm like, "Mm, well, did y'all not grow up on Merlin, Sword in the Stone? I'm just saying. They also interviewed some different people, you know, just one man who was a lawyer in Congo, and he went to a quote, you know, witch doctor at one of these places that had popped up because, you know, like if you had a stomach ache, he could get what's out of you and he would pull these objects out. But what they said on this news night, the BBC news night, is that like he would have the screw in his mouth, you know, and like, so he could pull it out of you and like, then, you know, like here, you're going to feel so much better. And like, you know, just keep a fucking magician and, I mean, sometimes it worked because people put in that faith, you know, and it's the trick of the mind Mm -hmm. of, you know, of anything. Placebo effect is real, but he, his son, he believed was possessed because this doctor told him. And it's because, again, he was a lawyer. His son stole a pen, like stole his dad's pen and... After that, he, like, lost a case or lost a client or something, you know. And I don't know if he was just, like, talking about it or something. But the guy was like, "Uh aha, your son is possessed. Jesus. And because he stole that pen, like, that's how you can tell. Because that's, you know, abnormal behavior. And, like, do you know how many times I have, like, stolen a pen? Like, a pen is there for the taking. If you don't have that freaking tape down to your desk is that not a communal pen especially if it's a good jail one yeah there was a on an episode of that scientology that i listened to with 
Leah Remini and Mike Render, they had a lady on there who her family had survived Jonestown. Like, they went, and they were like, ooh, this is not, like, what he said it was going to be, yada, 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 and they got out. But she was telling how she got into the cult and all of that. And, you know, she started the story out with, basically, her dad had this heart disease that the doctors were like, there's really nothing we can do. Like, you're going to have to stop working. And, sorry, basically, you had congestive heart failure type thing. Yeah. And Jim Jones, like, laid hands on him, and his fucking heart was healed. And, like, right then, he, like, ran around the church and was able to do all this stuff. And she's like, she says, and he went to the doctors, and the doctors were like, I I don't know what happened. And it's like, the mind's a powerful thing. And, you know, there's so much that we don't understand. And, you know, so... I mean, did he really have a heart condition to begin with? I don't know. You know, is there stuff that we don't know about that whole story? Probably. But the point is, either way, the mind is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. And people's ailments, if you can help them in the least bit, they're going to be forever grateful. Right. And I can even remember in school one time somebody telling me, I can't remember if it was a teacher or on a field work or something, and they were talking about how sometimes when you're working with the older population that lives alone, that sometimes just touching them is enough, not enough therapy, obviously, you got to actually do therapy. But, you know, I mean, just like, oh, you hurt right here and touching their shoulder or touching wherever they hurt and just lightly rubbing. I mean, that may be the only time they've been touched in a month, you know, and it's like if they live alone because their spouse has passed or whatever, you know, and they're the only ones, you know, so it's like, People don't realize the power of physical touch, attention, and, you know, just giving someone that moment of undivided attention and just the psychological impact that it can have on them. And what's sad is that sometimes the people that do realize that harness it and use it for bad shit. Yep. Like these people. Right. Luckily, that lawyer dad, he... He said, like, he beat his son. He, you know, thought he was doing the right thing and stuff. And he, not luckily he beat him, but luckily after that, he's like, wait, he's a kid. This isn't right. Like, this isn't working. This isn't what I'm supposed to do. Like, he normal. And he said he was sorry about stealing that pen. You know, like, and actually that pen had no bearing on me losing that client or losing the case or, you know, like, whatever. Oh, I actually forgot to file that briefing or whatever. (laughs) That's why I lost the case. Not because he stole that pen that I got at an expo. Right. Yes. And so he was, he was like, he is a child. He's my child. I'm supposed to protect him, not hurt him. And, you know, and like, now they have a relationship and stuff, but that's not the case. And that's why... This is such a horrible one. And I almost said, you know, like, "Mm, this is a little too much just like blood and gore kind of of it. And I I don't know. I was like, I don't know. Because, you know, Carrie been doing child deaths a lot. So I was like, I don't want to step on her, her stuff. But Kendoki is still going strong. And... You know, we might think it sounds stupid or like we know better that witchcraft isn't bad, you know, like for people to be like, oh, they practice witchcraft here. Like, motherfucker, that's not bad. Like, whatever. 
But we all know, like I said, there's those, you know, little extreme groups of everything mm-hmm. that does make it bad. And it's like, okay, well, Kendoki is that. And a lot of people are, you know, they the kids flee from home because that's the only way they can survive because you know luckily they got they escaped their parents or you know their parents have to sell their house to try to pay for an exorcism that is torture and there is a case before this and I don't know if I'm going to cover it on another one or like it might be a bonus episode like a bonus bonus episode I don't I don't know because this one was so like important too you know but that one this girl died at the hands of someone exercising her from Kendoki, you know? And I mean, call it whatever you want, but okay, Kendoki here, but just like that one that I did where the boy was on the autism spectrum and they exercised him, quote unquote, in that church, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like that was in the US, that was here. Yeah, it's a different name. It wasn't called Kendoki, but it was called Possession. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, you could literally say that. I mean, if you look at even the exorcism of Emily Rose or, you know, mm-hmm. anything like that. I mean, it could that could be said about any religious exorcism, no matter what the religion. Yeah. It's so sad to me because Kendoki does sadly affect the the young population and... I think Newsnight said it was like in a year there were like 85 cases of child abuse, maybe like in London or around, you know, that area dealing with that. Jeez. And that's what was reported. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of people, they're not going to even believe it or the parents are going to be too scared or ashamed If something bad happened, you know, like, I thought my kid was possessed. Or, on the flip side of that, the parent is going to think that they failed at exercising the kid. And they're going to think that, well, now my kid's going to hell or my kid's whatever. And so, they're definitely not going to report anything. Because even if the kid died, they think that they failed at that point. That's so true. That's so true. I, I don't know. It's so hard. And so it's just like, this is still ongoing. And I mean, this happened in 2010. That right there, that extreme torture, you know? And I don't know. It just like baffled me. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, as terrible as that is, it, I mean, I know that sounds terrible, but it's like we still have these organizations like fucking Scientology. Oh, for sure. And, you know, that are out and fucking getting like IRS tax breaks as a religious organization that are literally doing some of the same things. Yeah. And they're able to do it as a religious organization. I feel like uh, God's going to smite you down for that one. Well, if God smites me down for talking shit about Scientology. Not the Scientology part. You a re- said. A religious fucking organization. Yeah. <laughs> Just that. <laughs> well, your story was sad as fuck. It definitely was. Definitely. Mine's sad as fuck, too. But. Of course. Not. I don't know. Mine's murder, too. I mean, it's like fucking murder is sad. Yeah. 
But my story actually came from a recommendation while we were on one of our Creepinati Facebook Lives, like doing our monthly Facebook Lives that we do, you know, plug for Patreon in that separate Facebook group. And Emily L., who's one of the members of Patreon, said, hey, you should do this story. So here it is. All right. Emily, if I hate it, I'll blame Carrie. We're actually going to go just a little bit west of us into Louisiana Around Lafayette, to be more specific. Michaela Shunick, who went by the name Mickey, attended the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. She was super close to her family. Mickey's sister Charlene, who went by the name Charlie, was her best friend. Which, sidebar, I love the name Charlie for a girl. But, you know, I digress. They grew up in a very close-knit family. Their mom was a stay-at-home mom. And their dad was a scientist that worked in the oil industry. Mickey was studying anthropology while she attended the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, but she loved animals, like specifically horses. Her sister said that she really felt like she was going to end up just like teaching horseback riding lessons one day because she just loved being around her horses. And if she wasn't dealing with her horses, she was going somewhere around Lafayette on her bicycle. Like that's how she got around everywhere. On the night of May 18th of 2012, Mickey and some of her friends went to a concert. After the concert, she was going to ride her bike back home because the next day she had to go to her brother's high school graduation. On her way home, she stopped off at her friend Britley Wilson's house just to visit him for a bit. They hung out and then she got back on her bike, was like, I think he even offered to drive her home. And she's like, no, it's an amazing night outside. I'm just going to put some headphones in and you know, hit the road. It's a great night to just ride. Because again, she loved riding her bike. And that was the last time that any of Mickey's family or friends saw her alive. So she leaves his house at about 1244 in the morning. At 124, there's a surveillance camera at the Taco Bell that shows her riding by on her bike. I love surveillance, but then... It's so scary when you know, like, the person's no No longer longer. alive. I know. It's just, like, especially because it's kind of sometimes in that slow motion. It's just so eerie. And it's in black and white. Mm -hmm. Or especially if it's in that stop motion. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, that's a paranormal activity right there. Have you seen the meme that's like, this is the type of picture that we can get of Mars. And this is what our surveillance footage looks like. <laughs> like, can we step it up, please, CCTV? Right. Yes. I mean, are you serious? That's very true. A little less than 10 minutes later, Mickey gets a call on her cell phone from one of her friends. And that was the last time that her cell phone, like, pinged and was used. I wonder if her ringtone was that, hey, Mickey, you're so fun. You're so fun. You blow my mind. Hey, Mickey, that would have been funny. At 1.48 a.m., Mickey is caught on CCTV footage riding her bike on St. Landry Street. And police think that between St. Landry Street and Blackham Coliseum, in between those roads is where she gets kidnapped. So that footage is the last footage of Mickey alive. Yeah, wow. So the next morning, Charlie calls Mickey to remind her of their brother's graduation. And when she calls her, the phone's not on. And she's like, well, that's weird. Huh. Okay. Well, 
Charlie goes on to her parents' house, which is where Mickey lives. And her mom's mad. And she's like, what is going on? She's like, where's Mickey? And she's like, well, I don't know. And she's like, well, she's not here. Like, why is she not here? And it was like, they didn't think it was something serious. It, they were right. like, oh, okay, she was out partying with her friends. She overslept. She right. whatever. Like, you know, her sister even says, no, I remember texting her like, you're an idiot. Where are you? Why aren't you here? Yeah. Like, you, over, you slept through our freaking brother's graduation. Are you kidding me right now? You know, yeah. like, they're just sisters who are best friends. They're like, are you, you know, are you serious? Are you freaking serious? You know, yeah. I could just see... Me texting Casey that, you know? Mm-hmm. I just picture fried green tomatoes when little Iggy doesn't want to go to her big sister's wedding mm-hmm. because she'd have to wear the dress or whatever. Yes. And so it's just like, Mama, she's going to ruin my wedding. Yes. You know, like, so it's just like all of that. Like, that's what I picture, like, this chaos. So it's like, not serious, but serious, but like serious, like, she fucking ever slept. Like, that's so selfish of her Mm because she's ruined his big day. Right. Well, it wasn't until that afternoon when there was still no sign of Mickey that the family starts to get concerned. Their mom texts Charlie to say, okay, wait, like something's going on. I still have not heard from Mickey. Do you know anything about this? Like, where is she kind of thing? So they start calling hospitals. They called Brettley, you know, all these things just to see okay, is she still with you? Is she hurt? You know, she's she rides her bike. Like, was she in an accident that they didn't know about? You know, yeah. they're doing all the logical things. And of course, Brettley's like, no, she left my house last night because she ha- said she had to come home for your brother's graduation. Like, no, she's not here. And that's when Charlie really started to panic. So by 5 p.m., the family reports her missing to the Lafayette Police Department. So the police start retracing all of her steps, interviewing everyone that was in contact with her the night before, and there's nothing. They're retracing her steps that she would have gone on her bike, you know, on the route to see if, okay, was she hurt? Was there any sign of an accident? What could it have possibly have been? Because there's no sign, and that's just it. Police came up with nothing. So they brought Brettley in for questioning just so they could see, okay, did he have something to do with this? You know, was it unrequited love, that kind of thing? And he's like, no, 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 no. We're just friends. I didn't do anything to her. Like, this is not what you think, you know, that kind of thing. And the more digging they did, police were like, this isn't him. They just kind of ruled him out. Police set up a headquarters on Ryan Street in Lafayette, which is right around kind of close to where they thought that she went missing and they're getting the information out on social media and all the things and still nothing. While police are doing their grid searches of the area to again, see if there was any type of accident on her bike. They're also looking at all of the CCTV footage. Like we talked about earlier where they were able to kind of follow her path and know which way that she went. One thing that they did find that stuck out was on some of the footage, they saw this white pickup truck that looked like it was following Mickey. Why is it always a white vehicle? Because it's hidden in plain sight. So based on this footage, it was a white Chevy 
like Z71. And in, I think in this parish, there was 3,000 of those trucks alone. So not just white trucks, like white Chevy Z71s. So this white pickup truck, again, is following her at a distance that is enough to make you go like, wait, that's not, that's weird. Like they're, like even in a CCTV footage, you're like, that's too close. Yeah. I don't like that. And so police are like, okay, this is related. The person driving this truck got to be involved. Eight days after Mickey went missing, her bike was found under an overpass in Whiskey Bay. If you're going from Baton Rouge to Houston, it's kind of that middle mark between Baton Rouge and Lafayette. It's on that big, like, 18-mile-long bridge, the Chafalaya Basin. It's one of the, like, two exits on that bridge. But this is why this is important. Because... Under that overpass, it's kind of like a swampy, marshy area. Are we talking about your leggings? <laughs> I would say I was talking about under your boobs, but they're not big enough. No, nah, they definitely are not. Okay. But this is important because the Whiskey Bay area is part of the old stomping grounds for Derek Todd Lee. Hate him. Right. The serial killer out of Baton Rouge. So to find her bike there was like, wait, what? Because Whiskey Bay is like 20 or 30 miles east of Lafayette. So she didn't ride her bike that far. So when police start looking at the bike, they realize that it has some damage to it. And they can tell that it's been hit from behind. And so they're like, okay, clearly someone intentionally hit her from behind. And then what? Yeah. So police descend on the Whiskey Bay area. They've got ATVs. They've got airboats. They've got horses. They've got everything to be looking in this swampy shit to see if they can find Mickey. The day after the bike is found, police release surveillance video of the Z71 and the bike, like pictures of the bike where it had been hit to the media. And there had been a lot of like social media posts and, you know, drumming up of the case. And there was, of course, a tip line that had been started. Well, not long after they released this surveillance video of the truck and the pictures of the bike, the police got a tip. There's a man in town named Rocky McGee. And Rocky was known to have a history with alcohol abuse. And in fact, he was about to go to trial for a DUI manslaughter. Oh, shit. Right. So police get a tip that it was actually... Rocky McGee, who was drinking and driving, like ran over her basically, killed her, and then disposed of the body. I wonder if that was the MO last time. I don't I don't think it was, but if you're already about to go to trial for manslaughter for a DUI, yeah. there's a chance you're gonna get out of prison eventually. Yeah. More likely than not, you're going to. You may go to jail for I'm making this up. Let's say 15 years. But if you fucking do it again while you're about to go to jail, no. Yeah. You're going, bye. You're going forever. So if that was the case, 
you're going to fucking get rid of the body. Yeah. So even if that wasn't the MO before, it stands to reason that it would be this time in a cover your ass type of situation. Yeah. I just feel like with a bike, if someone hit her and like ran her over on accident with a bike, they would get away with it with a hit and run easier. Girl, no. I watched Forensic Files. Uh Uh-uh. There'd be one paint chip and they'd fucking know. Uh Uh-uh. That's literally an episode. (laughs) Like, no joke. That's literally an episode. Well, here's the thing. Rocky drives a white Z71 as well. So it's like, not only does he have this history, he's got a freaking white Z71. Yeah. The tipster also says that his girlfriend, Andy Comier, is involved as well. So police get Rocky's truck and they're combing it for evidence. They're looking to see if there's any DNA from Mickey in it because he would have had to have transported the body and the bike, you know, along with running her over if he's the one that did it. Yeah. He's maintaining his innocence, and so is his girlfriend, Andy. She's like, I didn't fucking do this. Are you kidding me? I didn't do this. We didn't do this. And there are no hits on the truck. I mean, absolutely none of Mickey's DNA. There is nothing pointing in that truck that Mickey was anywhere near it. Nothing showing that he had bumped a tire. I mean, nothing. Police go back to the tipster, and that's when the tipster recants. Of course. And basically, police say that they think that the tips are basically just wanted attention. And I think that that should be a crime. It really should be. Because, first of all, their names are dragged through the mud. Yeah. I mean, probably could I have not said their names on this podcast? Yes. But, I mean, they're also cleared from it. But it's like, and I mean, his record is public record. If, you know, he got convicted of that DUI thing. But it's like... Their names are dragged through the mud. People think that even if they're proven not guilty, people still think, hey, they were suspected of murder. Yeah. You know, and it's like, so not only have you potentially destroyed someone's life, mm-hmm. but number two, you have fucking wasted so many resources from the police department yeah. and taken them away from other avenues of the investigation that might actually have solved it. Right. And especially. Especially if it's a fucking serial killer or so, or a serial mm-hmm. rapist or something like that, and they kill or rape again because police are going down an avenue that you let, led them down on a wild goose chase. Yeah. Whereas they could have been searching for something that was actually legitimate right. and somebody else gets hurt because of you. That should be a fucking crime. Yeah, I completely agree because I feel like that's going to make them hesitate a little, a little more. When someone else tips them off of someone else. Well, and especially when it's like, because that's the thing, is that a lot of the tipsters were like, well, my so-and-so's acting kind of funny, and they drive a white Z71. Well, my blah, blah, blah's acting kind of funny, and they drive a white Z71. And it's like, they they have to follow them all up. Yeah. So you don't want to deter people from calling in tips, because... There's genuine tips, and then there's malicious tips. I was about to say, that was from doing, that was someone who wanted to get back at that couple. But how can you prove intent? Because that's just like, again, first-degree murder versus second-degree murder. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, I feel like that's way easier to prove intent there. But like, you know, you would have to, there would have to be a concrete way to prove 
intent with that. Yeah. But if you are intentionally wasting police resources like that, mm-hmm. pointing them in the wrong direction of their search, like, oh, come search over here, and they fucking drain a lake and yeah. or send divers down and spend days over here when really they should have been over here, then you should fucking have to reimburse them those resources mm-hmm. and or go to jail. Yes. Completely agree 100%. Shortly after that whole debacle, police get two new tips that are actually about the same guy. And this guy owns a white Z71. And both of the tipsters say that he's been acting weird. And when police find out that one of the tipsters is this guy's future father-in-law, their ears really perk up. Yeah. So both of the tipsters told police to look at a guy by the name of Brandon Scott Laverne. So this is what police find out about old fucking Brandon. Obviously, they know he's engaged, hence father-in-law-to-be. And his fiance thinks he fucking hung the moon. As far as she's concerned, he is an amazing guy that would never hurt a fly and that literally does nothing wrong. But as police do some digging... They realize that he has a bit of a past. So Brandon has actually been in jail. Police also find out that Brandon is actually a registered sex offender. Well, okay. Yes. And he's like a level three registered sex offender, which is the highest level of sex offender that you can be in Louisiana. Like meaning he basically the state's supposed to know where he is all the time. Like, he's supposed to be, it's supposed to be on his driver's license. Like, he's supposed to be, like, they're not at all times, but like, they're supposed, they're supposed to know where he lives, that kind of thing. Because he was convicted, and I think he spent like eight to 10 years in prison for oral sexual battery. I don't know what that fucking means. Please do some more digging into him. And I'm going to go into in a minute, like, why they start doing all the digging, but stick with me. They do some more digging, and they find that Brandon also frequents sex workers. He hangs out with his fiance. When he leaves her, he calls and goes and sees a sex worker. But he also had girlfriends in all these different places that none of them knew about each other, too. So he was basically living this double life, essentially, that his fiance knew nothing about. And from what I understand, I don't think she even knew about him being a registered sex offender. I mean, honestly, how could you if you weren't told that? Well, here's the thing. It's supposed to be on his driver's license. I know, but I mean, I I don't think I've ever looked at someone's driver's license. But I mean, you go buy beer, you go, you know, like it's like you've never like looked at their, just kind of like glanced down at it whenever... No. They, you go buy alcohol or whatever? No. You've never been like, oh my God, look how terrible my driver's license picture is to somebody? Well, yeah, but if I was a registered sex offender, I wouldn't be doing that. But you know what I mean, though. Like if they, But if they just go to buy beer or anything like that, like it is clearly labeled mm-hmm. on their driver's license. Like it's sex offender. Yeah. Like it, there is no question that it's on there. And so... If you just see their driver's license in their wallet or what have you, you see it. Yeah. I don't know. I just feel like... Well, okay. Think about like Colby's wallet. 
his driver's license is on the outside. So if it's just laying on the countertop, his wallet, like I see it. Obviously, he's going to be sneakier with it because it's snake. Yes. But he's being very sneaky with it because he hasn't actually registered mm. and hasn't actually gotten it on his driver's license since he got out. That's a fucking system error, too. Exactly. We're going to get back to that. But what the tipsters told police, the father-in-law said, okay, Brandon told me that over the weekend that Mickey went missing, that he took a trip to New Orleans, which he did not have planned and had literally no reason to go to New Orleans. And he said that on his way, he stopped to get gas and he was mugged and he was stabbed. So he went to a hospital to seek treatment. And so police were like, well, that had to have been reported because, again, they're mandatory reporters in the ER. So if somebody comes in with like a stab wound or a gunshot wound, like they have to call police. And they did. Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Department came and got his report. And when they were asking him, like, okay, hey, where did this happen? He was like, well, it was at a gas station. I stopped to get directions. I was lost. And I got robbed. And they're like, okay, well, what gas station were you at? And he was like, well, I don't know. And, like, the more they asked him questions, the more his story kind of changed. And he was like, well, I don't know. I don't know. You know, it was just, it was very sus. And so they were like, mm, this is weird. Okay. But then he was released and boy, bye. Right. And so the father-in-law was like, that's fucking weird. He had literally had no reason to go to New Orleans. And then he gets stabbed. Like, this is bizarre. By the by, he drives a white Z71. Well, then another guy calls in and says, okay, so this is weird. This guy, Brandon, comes in to buy a white Z71. And he says that he had one, like he already had a white Z71, and it was stolen. So he came into this guy's dealership to buy another one. And the guy in the dealership says, you know, as we're talking, the news comes on and it's talking about Mickey's disappearance. And dude just starts acting super fucking weird. Like, the longer he's here, the weirder it gets. He was already kind of bizarre, and the Z71 was stolen, and now he wants to buy another one. And then the thing with Mickey came on the TV, and it just got weirder. So police, again, those are kind of the, the big tips that made police go, wait, what? So that's when they started, again, really looking into Brandon, and that's when they found all the other stuff. They also found out that back in 1999, he was actually accused of murder. Okay. He was accused of murdering a lady by the name of Lisa Pate. But when they took it to the grand jury, they said there's not enough evidence to indict. And so nothing ever came of it. So police knew that there was some suspicion around him of a previous murder. And then there's all this. Like, this is bizarre. This is just weird. So, police start looking more into his Z71. Because they're like, okay, it's stolen. Like, let's see what we can find out. So, police look into the insurance records about his truck. And they find out that his, quote-unquote, stolen truck had been found in Texas. His truck was abandoned and burned to a crisp, basically. Someone had set it on fire. So police get his truck and bring it back to Louisiana to 
try to find any evidence that they could possibly find off of this charred truck. When they get it back to Louisiana, they're looking, there's no DNA in the truck, so that they can't find anything of Mickey's in the truck. But what they do find is his license plate number. Like they've got the license plate number with the truck, all the things, which I don't know why they couldn't have just had that from DMV records, but whatever. So what they did was they ran his license plate through different traffic cameras. And they found that just like eight hours before the time that Mickey disappeared, they had an image of his truck on a traffic camera. And on that traffic camera, you can see a perfect image of his license plate. And you can see in the bed of his truck, these posts and a white foam ice chest, like laying in the bed of his truck. So you can get like this perfectly clear view of what's going on in the bed of his truck. And then they go, wait, they go back to the footage of the night that Mickey went missing. And they look at that white truck again. Now you can't see the license plate. But you can see what's in the bed of the truck. And it is the same posts and the same ice chest in the same exact spots. And they were like, ding, 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 ding. Got him. So at this point, they're like, okay, it's time. Like, let's make a move. So they go to bring him in. But now I will say I'm a little fuzzy on the details of which came first because some stuff I found made it seem like they just went ahead and arrested him for first degree murder. Some stuff I found made it seem like what they did was they actually arrested him for failure to register as a sex offender so that they could bring him in and get him in jail while they wrapped up the loose ends to charge him with first degree murder. So I'm not a hundred percent sure like which came first chicken or the egg, but either way they arrested him. And the plan was to charge him with first degree murder. They knew that this was going to be a really hard case to win because one, they wanted to charge the death penalty because it's a first degree murder charge and it's Louisiana, but they don't have a body. And so that will create a lot of reasonable doubt, especially in a death penalty case. And so from what I understand, with the blessing of the family, the family was like, um, we want her body. So yeah, go ahead. And so they offered him a plea and said, okay, if you lead us to her body and you confess to her murder and Lisa's, the murder that he was suspected of in 99 and tell us about it. We'll just give you life in prison. And he took like a day and was like, yep, I'll take it. So he ended up again, pleading guilty and led police to Mickey's body. And now based on his confession and Mickey's poor body that was badly decomposed, but from What they can gather from all of the evidence pieced together, this is what happened to Mickey. Brandon was, I don't know, driving around. I don't know what the fuck he was doing. Maybe he was going to look for a sex worker. I don't know what he was doing out. But he saw Mickey out riding her bike and chose her. He, with his truck, bumped her tire to get her to stop. Offered her a ride. She said, nah, bitch, I'm good. And he didn't like that. Um... 
Well, if you, like, this isn't a playground in fourth grade. You can't, you know, pull a girl's hair, like, pigtail and be like, oh, let me do something for you. You can't bump her tire and then be like, oh, but do you need a ride? Exactly. Nah, I'm good. Right. Well, he didn't like that answer. And he goes to attack Mickey. And she had mace on her. She sprays him with her mace and takes the knife that he had gets it from him, and stabs him with his own knife. Oh, my God. Mickey. Yes. Well, then he ends up getting control back of the knife and stabs Mickey, I think, four times. Well, she passes out from that, and he thinks that she's dead. So he loads her up in the truck and drives off because he was going to bury her. Basically... Once they get there, Mickey's not dead. And she, like, jumps up to start attacking him again. To fucking fight for her life. Go, Mickey. Also, though, all I can picture is that scene in The Hangover when they open the trunk. Yeah. And he comes out. Right. Well, I think that she gets another stab in then, too. I really hope so. But he pulls a, a gun that he had, and that's when he shoots her in the head. And <sighs> and that is the fatal wound. Fuck. So he's going to bury her, but he's not able to because he's so wounded. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up taking her to this small rural cemetery about 30 miles from where she was abducted and, like, covers her up with some, like, branches and brush and stuff. That's when he then goes to New Orleans, says he'd been robbed, all the things. And so it's like, had Mickey not gotten those stab wounds in, this may never have been solved. Right. Wow. Because him having to go to the hospital for those stab wounds was like the thing. Yeah. And then, of course, his truck was a big part of it, too. But it's like, when... He had to go seek medical treatment. It was like, oh, wait, that too? Because there were so many reports that police were getting of people saying, so-and-so has a white Z71 and they're acting weird. Mm -hmm. They were getting so many reports of that. So the one from the dealership could have just easily been lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Because it was not that different from the other 3,000 they had gotten. Right. But having the father-in-law call on top of it... That was what was the game changer for the case against Brandon. So he was sentenced to life in prison in Angola, in Louisiana, which we know is one of the toughest prisons in the United States. And since he's been there, he has been a pain in the fucking ass. Back in 2013, not long after he was convicted of Mickey and Lisa's murders, He literally filed 22 civil claims. The article I I found, it was like, said, like, he sues everyone. (laughs) This is an article from KATC, the suing thing. They say he's suing his sister for libel and slander, especially about her remarks that she said that he made unwanted sexual advances towards her. Oh, my God. Towards his sister. So there was also, I I didn't talk about this, but okay. 
So he was married before, and his ex-wife, he was suing her too because she had made comments about the domestic violence in their past because her stories give her, quote, the upper hand on him. What a fucking piece of shit, narcissistic dick cheese. <laughs> I hate him. Yeah. But, okay, so really quickly, I, I can't believe I forgot to talk about this. So his ex-wife filed assault charges on him because he showed up at her work one day and beat her up. Like, she worked at a hospital, and he showed up. Oh, my up. gosh. Yes, it was bad. And basically, they don't know whose fault it was, whether it was, like, the clerk, the whose fault it was, the court, the who, whoever, whomever, whatever it is. Somebody forgot to, like, file the charges, and so he never went to court for it. Are you kidding me? Right. And so when he got arrested for the failure to register, they were talking about should they extradite him to face the charges for this because he never faced them. And it was like, wow. could you imagine? Wow. Yeah. Then he was suing a first cousin because she said that he had stuck his hand up her shirt. Then he was suing a former cellmate because this cellmate like retold stories that Brandon had told him. And he was like, those stories were to keep me from losing face with other prisoners. Okay. <laughs> was suing all, all like NBC. Cause it was an episode of Dateline, like the daily advertiser busted in Acadia, which is a, a Lafayette publication, like suing all of these media outlets because they don't like that. They said that he has quote, a dark side. Sir, you in fucking prison for murder, yeah. and you confessed, and like you literally led them to the body. So like, there's no yeah. like you literally led them to the body. Like you told them where to find the body. Yeah, suing all of the parishes, all of the offices for all the attorneys for all the things. Like literally, like could ne- keep name for days. Suing University of Louisiana Lafayette just for investigating. Wow. His former bank, because they froze his assets after his arrest and conviction. <laughs> his ex fiance's dad for libel and slander. Like, all these people for slander. And the private investigator who was one of the ones that was like, Hey, uh, do you think that he actually was the one that killed Lisa Pate? And, like, that kind of brought that to everybody's attention. He sued him, too. Oh, my gosh. But you fucking confessed to that one, too, bro. So, uh... Yeah. Cool. I'm pretty sure nothing came of those because he had to come up with, like, $400 to file them all. So, I think nothing ever came of them, but seriously. And then, lastly, in 2018, at about 4.30 in the morning, he tried to make a run for it in prison. He didn't make it very far. Like, literally, they said as soon as he left his camp building... An alarm went off and the guards were like, oh. And so they were able to stop him before he even got past the fence of his camp. So this was, in, again, 2018, so I'm sure he's still not. But he's in lockdown and completely separated from the general population. And then at, at the time, they were deciding, are they going to press charges on him for the attempted to flee? Wow. So he just, and, you know, there's was an article like, 
that he was saying he's been treated so poorly in prison. Oh, you know, I have no fucking patience for that bullshit. Like no fucking patience because, you know, you had zero fucks to give when you were fucking treating Mickey and Lisa poorly. So, and I'm sure you treated all of the sex workers you came in contact with so fucking wonderfully. Yeah. I'm sure that that's not a pattern at all. I mean, I'm sure you just jumped straight to murder in 1999 and in 2012 with nothing in between or before to lead up to those. And those were probably the only two. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure that you (laughs) treated everyone with the utmost respect and you don't deserve the way you're treated in prison at all, Brandon. Oh, fucking K. (laughs) What a loser. (laughs) You really told him. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not trying to inflate this dipshit's like ego or his history, the way we seem to do with like serial killers and all. We're like, oh my God, there could be so many victims. But really and truly, he just all of a sudden in 1999 and then 2012, like killed two girls. Like, what was the catalyst? What was the buildup? What made him choose to kill them then? And, you know, so I just want to know what his buildup was and what was he doing in the interim? To satiate that behavior. Yeah. He was doing something. And it was probably pretty terrible. And I could almost guarantee it was to those poor sex workers. I feel really bad for all of his victims. And that includes his fiance. Again, there was a Dateline episode about this case. And there is this part that I, I played it for Donna because it just touched me and It really impacted me. And it was when the detectives were interviewing his fiance. And on the Dateline episode, they even say the detectives told her more than she told them because she had no fucking clue what he was doing. Mm -hmm. When they told her that he had been arrested for first degree murder and she's like, "And, and you have proof and you just can hear her heart breaking. I mean, it's painful to listen to. I mean, just the... I think because I just put myself in her situation and how would I feel if I was sitting in a police station and someone told me that Colby had just done something like that. And it's like, because he, you know, she thought that he was this great man and that, you know, she even says like, he's wonderful and all the, you know, was saying all the, listing off all these great things about him. And then they're like, by the by, actually, no. And she's like, what do you mean? You know, I don't know. It just broke my heart. And again, it's that domino effect of victims that you just sometimes don't even think about are victims yeah which i think you too but i for sure am am such like a proponent of highlighting is clearly you too because you talked about her but the victims that are the family members of the perpetrator because just because they're married to him or just because they're related to him doesn't mean that they're the bad guy too Yeah. No, they aren't the ones whose family member was murdered, but their lives are forever changed, too. And we can't forget them either. Right. It doesn't mean that they are equally, you know? Yeah. I don't want to take away from the actual victim of the crime and their families losing them forever. Yeah, it's a different type of loss. Yes. But... 
because their loss and what they're going through is different, it doesn't negate what the other one's going through. Exactly. And I think that that's what's important to highlight. Yeah. And then there's that whole other thing when there's like a family annihilator Mm -hmm. where like if you're just say, okay, just say for the one who shall never be named CW, his dad, okay, well, his dad, his son, he... She's talking about Chris Watts, just in case uh, we have new listeners and y'all don't know her disdain for Chris Watts. Yes, because Carrie didn't. But his dad, you know, lost a daughter-in-law and grandkids, a grandson on the way. Mm -hmm. And, oh, yeah, he also lost his son, too, you know, because of him doing that. So it's just like a whole other thing, you know, like that's a whole separate Fucking yeah. Well, because you mourn the life that you had, you mourn the life that you thought you had. You you mourn your future, you know. So it's not just the situation; it's the situations to come too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you definitely win on the heavy story award. Yeah, I'm glad I went first this time. Me too. Yeah, I will never look at someone biting their nails the same way. Hopefully, y'all enjoyed this episode, even though it was heavy. And just hard. I had never heard of your story before, you know. And this is across the pond mine. So I never heard of mine either. So, like, I don't know. I think these are two lesser known. Mm -hmm. I don't know. People are going to be like, "Uh, Donna, no. Get out, girl. Because these are whatever. But, you know, you know me. Yeah, I liked your story this week because it was sinister. Even though it wasn't paranormal, it was very, like, sinister in that way. So, yeah, do more of those. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Let us know what y'all think, as always. And just a reminder, you can always leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so freaking much for listening. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.